Hi, I'm Anthony Walters, and welcome to the Investment Manager Podcast. We're here to help you learn more about a wide variety of investment managers, their theories, and their investment outlook in order to challenge your own. My guest on today's show is Jane Andrews. Jane is the CIO and founder of Bamboo Black, a UK-based investment boutique which specializes in multi-cap listed equities in the Asia-Pacific region. Jane has over 30 years of extensive sector experience, spanning four decades, and combined with her team, the firm has over 80 years of investment experience, many of those spent working across the world in local markets. Join me as we discuss Jane's journey, investing in the 1980s Japanese bull run, and why India could be the next big manufacturing center of the world. All opinions expressed by the podcast host and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or business interests. Both the host and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small village in rural Hampshire, just outside Winchester. So it was a, it's a really beautiful area to grow up and lots of bike rides and just, yeah, it was with hindsight now, I think that in those days it was much easier for children just to sort of go out by themselves and wander around country lanes, et cetera, than it is probably today. And in terms of family background, were there any family connections to the business? Only in the sense that my parents had an investment portfolio and my father used to dabble with that as well as having a broker manage it with him. So I had some experience of him mentioning companies, etc. but he wasn't actually, you know, involved in the industry. You obviously had an awareness of that at a young age. Was that because you were uh, hearing things there, your father discussing it, or was it just something that you were curious about and so proactively talked to him about? I think it was just more, you know, he used to discuss things sometimes and discuss companies, mainly blue chip British companies. So it wasn't really that I was actively seeking to know more about investments at that point. So what sparked your interest in investing? Well, it didn't happen until after I'd left school and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I sort of thought, well, maybe food science or ergonomics. I didn't have a burning desire to go into the city or be a lawyer, doctor, etc. I was really sort of not sure what I wanted to do. I worked for a short time at Hampshire County Council in their accounts department. And I met somebody that ran their pension fund. They used to run their pension fund in-house in those days. And he started talking to me about investing and he actually introduced me to a broker who I came up to London to meet. And I also met my father, the broker that he used as well, but I didn't get a job through them. And then I remember one day he came over to my desk and said, why don't you apply for this job? And it was to be a trainee investment analyst at the then Midland Bank. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll try. So I went to the interviews and I got a job with Midland Bank. And 
moved to work in London, started commuting from Hampshire. And I worked with a manager. He managed a pension fund globally. And so I assisted him and he had the UK, the US markets, you know, that he was very well established there. But Asia in those days was, was rather different and almost off the radar to a certain degree, but they were obviously invested in those markets. So I started really getting involved with Japan and Asia in those days and just really liked the fact that they were much less efficient than, say, the US or the UK. And I just found it fascinating, the different cultures as well. I remember trying to pronounce Japanese names and listen to Japanese brokers. It took me a while to get my ear attuned to the different accents. But for me, it was a very interesting time. It was the time of the Japanese bull market. So I'm probably one of the few people around that remembers the Japanese bull market. So I was very young at the time and it was just, just fascinating. When did you start work at Midland Bank? That was in the mid eighties. So you saw a Japanese bull run and then you also saw 87 bear market crash. Exactly. So I remember the bull run and I actually remember the market peaking, I mean, it peaked around Christmas, New Year time, in 1989. So I remember that distinctly. And then it was just, it seemed like a one way from there on for, for many years. But it was fascinating. I mean, in those days, I remember investing when it was every company, a railway company, they've got lots of land. So that is the place to invest. Any company that had land holdings, even though it was being used for something else, was seen as very attractive. And I, I remember going to visit companies and sometimes you would see a French Impressionist painting on the walls. And <laughs> yeah, it was a fascinating, fascinating time. The first time I visited Japan was in 1987 and it was the most unusual place I'd ever been. And, and in those days, you didn't have signs in English. People didn't really speak English. It was just so, so different. That's obviously changed quite dramatically. But I remember the breakfast would be thick white bread with marmalade on it. Yeah. <laughs> very, very different. In terms of your experience, you started in accounting. A brief foray there, I suppose, before you moved on to the investment side of things. How much would you say that your early experience in accounting shaped how you think about investing? I mean, I'm, I'm not an accountant. I was in the accounts department, but I'm not a trained accountant. I think that it helped me in the sense of I'm quite analytical the way I think. And I'd always enjoyed math at school and I enjoyed that you came to a conclusion. And I think for me, investing, you need to come to a conclusion. You need to be able to make a decision. And you might not know all the facts. You know as much as you can. It's very important not to just take things at face value, but to always question, always think, where could this go wrong? What am I missing? You find, I think, in this industry that especially some dynamic management, their style can be very exciting 
And that is what I'm looking for, somebody with vision. But at the same time, you've got to measure that. And can they deliver on this? Are they just telling a good story? So I think it's very much something where you've got to do your own research. You've got to be comfortable with it. You've got to own your decisions. I think that's really important. How long did you spend at Midland Bank as an analyst? I spent a couple of years there. And then I moved on briefly to a company called Eagle Star Insurance, which became part of Allied Dunbar. And I realized that an insurance company wasn't necessarily, for me, it just wasn't necessarily the right style of investing. And then I moved to a company called John Gavet. And John Gavet in the late 80s was one of the premier investment management houses in London for Asia. They had a very large investment trust, Gavet Oriental. They had a number of funds investing in Asia and in Japan. And so for me, it was, it was a really exciting opportunity joining that team. Let's talk about timing because according to my research, you joined John Gavet in September 87 and we know about October 87. So having seen the early bull run in Japan through to 87 and joining the firm specifically at that point, what was the environment like at the time within the firm? How were your peers reacting? to what was happening in October 87? Yes, because I, I literally just joined and then we had the crash and it was, it was a bit like, whoa, my goodness, you know, suddenly you sort of saw a very, very different environment. And I think we were all a little bit shell-shocked at the time. And for me, I didn't actually have a fund that I was running at that point. So that I think enabled me to sort of step back a little bit. So I wasn't actually seeing companies that I'd invested in. It was more, I was witnessing the team as a whole. It was, it, with hindsight, it was actually very brief, but it was pretty brutal. And I remember thinking, well, my goodness, you know, this is, this is a very challenging environment. But out of that came the opportunities. First fund I actually ran was a gold uh, resource fund. As the manager left the company, the fund was very small. So I was given the task of running this fund. So I was speaking to people in South Africa, in Canada, and sort of getting to grips with the mining and resources. So I ran that fund for a short time and then that was wound up. And then I had another colleague who then left the company and I started running Gavet Pacific Income. And that was really exciting opportunity and the performance was that point it went really well I had a really good start to my investment career and it was a really exciting time traveling to the region I remember doing and I was out there for three weeks visited six countries and it was just fascinating because Asia in those days that there were very sort of limited opportunities in terms of investing, I would say. You don't have the depth of companies that you now have to invest in. But it was still very, very exciting. And I thought, wow, you know, I've come and into this. And it's, for me, it was developing my own style as well. And I think as an investor, you've got to be comfortable with the way you invest, the way you think. And 
I don't think you just adopt what somebody else is doing. It's very important to build your own conviction, your own own style of investing. But having said that, I learned an awful lot from the head of Asia, a chap called Charles Fowler. There was another lady who did Japan, Rosemary Morgan. And so they were very experienced and I learned a lot from working with them. And that was when I really started getting interested in smaller mid caps as well. As a company, we invested across the market cap spectrum, which is what I've continued to do today. And for me, I think finding those less well-researched, less well-known companies and investing in some of those in early stages is really rewarding and just gives you a real sense of achievement when you've found something and then invest in it. And then other people over time, as that company grows, start investing and it gets picked up by more analysts. Uh, goes through the market cap spectrum, gets on more people's radar. So if we recap briefly, you went from a very early career experience, which was focused on Western developed markets, as well as Asian markets, which at the time, I don't know if it would be fair to say was still emerging in a sense compared to Western counterparts. What led to you ultimately focusing more purely on Asian Pacific equities? Was it driven by interest? Was it driven by career opportunity or both? I think it was, it was interest, definitely. And just finding it fascinating and the different cultures and just seeing the opportunities. The US market and the UK market were much more efficient, whereas in Asia and Japan, they were much less efficient. They were they were less well-researched. And I think that for me, that was just fascinating. And, you know, you've got Chinese culture, you've got Japanese culture. Plus, I also did resources. I did Australia. So I had the developed markets in there as well. And I think having that diversity was really attractive for me. So let's move forward in your career now. You moved from John Gavet to CIM Group. Could you tell me more about that and your experience there? I actually had a couple of years out between those two, and I thought that maybe I would do something different, but I missed the city. I missed investing. And so I thought to myself, yes, I really want to come back to this. And within a couple of weeks, I had a job at CIM Fund Managers, and they were part of the cooperative bank, and I ran a dedicated Japanese fund and a dedicated Asian fund, so pension funds. I worked there for a couple of years and then they were taken over by Colonial Mutual in Australia and they wanted to run the money out of the time zone, the Australian time zone. But at the same time, I was approached by a headhunter and that was for a job at Smith & Williamson. And they were looking to bring their Asian fund in-house. It had been run out of Hong Kong and they wanted to have in-house expertise. So I got the job at Smith & Williamson as their Asian fund manager. And that was then the start of nearly 23 years career at Smith & Williamson. And it was time of, yes, really that I honed my investment skills, I would say. So you ran the Far Eastern Trust at Smith & Williamson. 
Again, the pattern firmly emerging in terms of focus and investment specialism. How would you say your experience has been shaped by working at a handful of fund houses, the different approaches and the accumulated experience along the way? Midland Bank was on a global pension fund, but I really specialized on Asia. Eagle Star, again, it was on the Asian funds. And then CIM was Asian funds as well. So I would say that the work environment where you've got more of a boutique environment where you can really think outside the box, where you can have ideas that maybe might be too small if you're running a very large insurance fund, for instance, where turnover is very, very low and you don't have the opportunity to find some of those smaller mid-cap ideas. So the more boutique environment, which Smith & Williamson was in the sense that I was doing Asia. We didn't have a huge team doing Asia. It was myself and there were some global specialists there. So it was much more, I would say, the beginnings of that entrepreneurial environment that I've obviously stepped into with the founding of Bamboo Black. It's an environment where you're a team at Smith & Williamson. You're very much, you know, you're part of a team, but you're also... You can make your own decisions. You're not having to sit on numerous committees and go through numerous decision makers to come to a final decision. And I think I've always had that freedom really to be the decision maker from very, very early on in my career. I would say I really enjoy markets as well. So I try and get that market feel for what's really going on in the, I do my own trading, etc. And seeing how the markets react, they can react very differently in Japan to the way they might react in Australia, for instance. Tell me about how it was to be an independent thinker amongst larger fund groups and houses. How did you interact with the house view? When I was at Smith & Williamson, we had an investment committee and I was part of the overall investment strategy. So I would give the input on Asia and Japan and we would then decide on the weightings that we would look to advise that the private wealth managers to give them guidance. So in that sense, I was very involved with the house view, so to speak. And I think the other thing that I learned at that time was working with private wealth managers where they've got the client and interact with the client. So I was one step back from that. But really, I got a feel for how markets and how when markets are challenging, how it affects the end client because my colleagues were dealing with individuals having to answer phone calls, having to make sure that the individuals, that they were looking after their money, that they were informed, that they were really doing their utmost to give them a superior service and quality service. And I think that for me, it helped me not be divorced from the end client, even though I didn't actually meet them, so to speak, but working in that environment, I was very aware of the importance that the money that you're running is for 
individuals. And I think for me, it's even though I've always been on the institutional side, that I'm very aware that it's very important to me that I invest that money wisely, that I invest it with best interests for Mr. and Mrs. Joe Bloggs. I think that really came home to me when I was at Smith & Williamson. Because I think sometimes when you're in a big institution, you're divorced from whose money you're actually, at the end of the day, you're running that pensioner's money. That was very important. So you spent almost 23 years at Smith & Williamson. Tell me about your experience in forming your own investment boutique. First question within that, I'd love to learn about the origins of the name Bamboo Black and generally share your experience so far after three and a half years. Well, Bamboo Black, I wanted a name that was synonymous with Asia and bamboo grows all over Asia Pacific. It's very prolific. It grows very fast and it is very strong. You see it used in scaffolding. And then charred bamboo was actually what Edison used for the filament for the light bulb. So putting those together, bamboo black, and then I wanted to have something a little quirky. I thought, well, bamboo with you know, the normal spelling of bamboo, you, you end up with a garden center if you start Googling that. But bamboo is actually the name that is in Malaysia or Indonesia. They actually spell bamboo, B-A-M-B-U. So that was where the name came from. And then... I got to the point in my career when I really wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and investing in small and mid caps, you meet many really interesting entrepreneurs and it was then, well, how do I go about this? You know, you can't just set up your own boutique. It's that's quite challenging. And I was introduced to Craig Bingham, who is the CEO of Benelong in Australia and Benbridge is their UK boutique, boutique, so to speak. And we discussed the opportunities and the model that they've got in Australia and that they've been replicating here, which is to bring on boutiques and they provide all the infrastructure, the compliance, the operation, sales, marketing, etc., that allow us as the boutique fund managers to concentrate on what we really enjoy doing is managing money. And so it was a real meeting of mine and we discussed setting up the Asian boutique because he'd been looking for an Asian manager for some time. And when I broached the Smith & Williamson, they were wanting to do, I mean, their first thought was what was best for clients. And in their view, it was best decision was that I would continue to run the funds as before when managers had left, funds tend to hemorrhage and when there's that change and uncertainty. So they were very happy with the way the performance had been of the funds, the way I'd run the money. I'd been a partner there for many years. So it was a very nice transition to founding Bamboo Black, to have Smith & Williamson involved, to have Benbridge Benelong involved. And it's been a really exciting, but it's challenging. I have to say, you get out of your comfort zone, you get involved in areas where you've never been involved before, like building a brand, the logo, the whole marketing messaging. So it's been a very interesting experience. And the other thing that for me, which was really exciting was to build a team and I've 
deliberately built a team that is very diverse in terms of background and experience as I want to have a, a collegiate culture where we complement each other. In terms of forming an investment process, let's talk about that because you at this point had almost three decades worth of investment experience, which has been multifaceted. How do you take all of that knowledge and experience and distill that down into an investment process of your own? So I look to very much expand the filter through which I explore ideas. And it's very much a process where we're not looking to narrow down the universe, which you see in many investment process slides. But we're looking to evaluate companies in the context of discovery loop or infinity loop. And this, for me, this really provides us the freedom to be able to think outside the box and follow our curiosity and really embrace learning. We expand rather than filter that lens. And then we explore those ideas. I mean, we're comparing ideas to regional and industry peers, looking to see what their competitive edge is. Where do they split in the supply chain? What are, what are the risks? And then we delve deeper into those investment ideas. So we're looking to determine whether the company has got the quality characteristics that we're looking for. And for those, we're looking for companies with the franchise, the sustainability of the franchise, the strength of the balance sheets, the stable management team, but management teams with vision. And teams where management are very much invested alongside us as minority shareholders. And we're really looking to see if that company has a culture of innovation. And I'm not just talking tech companies here. I mean, we could be talking a food company, for instance. And I think that innovation is really important, that companies are not just one product wonders. I mean, for instance, BlackBerry was a company which we had, you know, if you were in the business world, everybody had a BlackBerry, but then BlackBerry failed to stay on top of innovation and Samsung and Apple came along and ate their lunch, so to speak. So for us, it's very important to see that there is a pipeline of product development coming through with the companies we're investing in and that, that management are, that they have the right skill sets, that they're proven and that they've got that transparency as well. So we're also incorporating ESG, diversity and inclusion considerations. And this is very much part of the process. And good governance, I mean, good governance, I think, is so important as good governance tends to lead to the good E and the X. And I think with what we find with some companies, especially smaller mid-cap companies, sometimes they're really on a journey with a disclosure and quite often ask us, what can we do to improve the way we are communicating with investors? So that is a real privilege to then be able to sort of help them develop their investor relations skills. I find that's particularly prevalent in Japan, Japanese markets as a whole. I think that there's a huge opportunity there as far as balance sheet, as far as developing disclosure around ESG factors. I say balance sheet because from my knowledge and experience, Japanese companies are famed for having lazy balance sheets, some particularly large art collections that are held in house and things like that. 
So I think there's opportunity for engagement around that, but also ESG disclosure. What has been your experience so far in terms of the conversations that you've had regarding potentially inactive or lazy balance sheets, but then furthermore ESG disclosure? I think there's been a lot of progress made and you're seeing buybacks, you're seeing dividend payouts increasing in Japan and companies are much more aware and looking to address this issue of just having too much cash on the balance sheet. I mean, you still do get some and when you ask them, what is the purpose for this cash? And you still get, well, M&A, that's the one that usually comes up. We know we're waiting for this opportunity. And I think that in some ways a little bit of a cop-out, but a lot of people and a lot of management teams have made significant progress on dividends and on share buyback. And I think that in terms of ESG, diversity, I think is really important. And on the governance side, we are seeing more independent directors on Japanese boards and you're starting to see some diversity as well. I think it's quite challenging in Japan because many women, when they get married and have children, leave the workforce for a number of years. And then when they come back, they don't necessarily have those skill sets. So I think it can be very challenging for them coming back into the workforce to then make up that ground that they've lost over the last few years. But women are doing that and the labor laws are getting more supportive of women coming back into the workforce. So I think that is really helping. And one of the companies we've invested in that I spoke to recently, they've now got three female board members, which I was very um, pleasantly surprised. And the CEO said he'd done a lot of work in universities, university professors. And so he managed to, to find a really good selection of women that have the right skill sets to join his board. Based on your multi-decade experience, tell me about the journey that you've been on as a woman in asset management, how the business has evolved. You've obviously seen the Japanese workforce evolve in the sense that you've just described. But let's talk about your journey and how you found things so far, maybe from the 80s to now, the kind of progress that you've seen. I was actually discussing this with another fund manager not so long ago. And we actually think that in terms of Asia, that they were actually more women fund managers back in the late 80s, early 90s than there are today. And there's been quite a few that have left the industry, retired, etc. in recent years. I think that in London, that there seem to be less women fund managers today than there were back then. But I see more women in management in India, for instance, and China to a degree as well. So I think that there have been positive steps. And I think in some ways in Asia, it can be easier because you tend to have a lot more support, especially if you're in Hong Kong and Singapore than you probably do in the West. It, I think it can be harder in some ways, whereas childcare, et cetera, and help at home, many people have that in Asia. Let's talk about your team just for a moment to so come full circle. So 
you developed the boutique around three and a half years ago. I believe that you started with a slightly smaller team. Current structure is yourself as founder and CEO alongside two portfolio managers. So Pinnikin Patel, Linda Seitovitz, and then James Measures as analysts. So could you tell me how your process has evolved over time from inception to present day? So in terms of the way we work as a team, Linda is from mainland China and has lived in the UK for many years, so understands both cultures. So her primary focus is Greater China. Pinnacan has joined us in June of this year, and his focus is going to be on, he was previously a PM and a CPM. He's got nearly 30 years experience, and his focus is India and South Korea. And myself, I am the CIO, but my main focus is Japan, Australia, and ASEAN. And James is Japan, plus he's also our ESG champion as well. So we can all look across the market, but we have a, a sort of primary, primary focus. So as a team, Linda is very, very experienced with accounting. She's got a master's in international accounting. And that brings that really detailed analytical skill set. I am strategist looking at the big picture, but also very much on stock picking. I make the ultimate decision of what goes into the portfolio. We discuss it. We have a very collegiate culture. We do think differently. We have got different backgrounds. So that can bring debate into the equation, which I think is really healthy. And I think the fact that we've got combined experience of over 80 years really brings that depth of market cycles, that depth of experience that only comes living through the 87 crash, living through the SARS and dot-com bubble and more recently COVID, etc. So I think that experience is so important and if you hadn't been through the GFC, then I think that many people had not experienced the bear market until more recently. And I think that it's very important in investing to keep your confidence and markets can really sometimes challenge one's confidence. And you can't take the markets for granted. You can't think, oh, I've got there. For me, I'm always learning, always growing, and the markets can really humble you. It's something that however much experience you have, I think that we can still make mistakes. It's an industry that I think is very rewarding, but can be very challenging at times as well. I think this year has been particularly challenging. I don't know what kind of feedback you've had from investors regarding this year. How have you found 2022 as far as a challenge? feedback from investors and also remaining true to your long-term strategy? I would say 2022 has been one of the most challenging years that I've ever had as an investor. And as I've just said, I've been through many cycles and I just think there's been so many moving parts this year. It's been a year also where you've seen a very macro-driven um, with the events that have occurred and less I would say the focus on individual company fundamentals in that sense. I mean, you've seen the big index heavyweights performing really well, 
and some of the small and mid-cap companies underperforming, whilst quality growth has, has really struggled this year. And as we are exposed to smaller mid-caps, we've got quality, we've got growth, <laughs> that it has been challenging for us. But I believe that the companies we're investing in have got great long-term prospects. So yes, this year has been challenging, but I think that it's throwing up opportunities. And I think it's, it's about sticking with what you believe, your style, and that can, that can be hard. I mean, it can be very challenging, but I believe, and I've been here before when we've had years that have been tougher than others, but it, it does come back. And it's just remembering that, that fundamentals and the companies that we've invested in, they've got really good prospects, but we've had a difficult time this year. But I think that we're in position for things to improve going into 2023. When reading investment outlooks for 2023, the crowded trade very much appears to be overweight China and emerging markets. What's your view on that as a whole? And is 2023 the time for China and EM to shine? I think that the outlook for EM, well, Asia, my part of EM, so to speak, I think is looking definitely more promising going into 2023. I think one of the major headwinds we've had this year has been the strength of the dollar. And the dollar appears to have potentially peaked out in the last few weeks which if the dollar can continue to not strengthen, I think that that will then turn from being a severe headwind to potentially a tailwind. I think also in terms of valuations, we're back at levels, especially in China, Hong Kong, although we've had a, a bit of a move in the last few weeks, I think we're still back at levels which we haven't seen in many companies for some years now. I also think that we, in terms of the earnings downgrades, that I think we're more than halfway through earnings downgrades in Asia, whereas I think there's much more to go in terms of analysts catching up with the earnings in potentially the US than there is in Asia, where I think we have already discounted quite a lot of the potential slowdown that we are witnessing now. Having said that, within Asia, India is trading at a premium and India is a market and a country that we are overweight and will continue to be overweight. And we see long-term structural benefits of India. So even in the short term, it doesn't look cheap and quality in India never looks cheap. What I found over the years is that I sell something in India based on valuation and it works for a while and then I regret it as you, you then find that a few months later it starts performing again. So I think that the structural story for India for me is 18 to 20 years behind where China is today in terms of industrialization, in terms of urbanization. And in terms of urbanization, I'm not necessarily talking sort of Delhi, Mumbai. I'm talking those third, fourth, fifth tier cities and the development of those rural cities, so to speak, that we saw very much in China. And that is happening in India. And also the 
supply chain shifts, you're starting to see manufacturing moves away from China and India stands to benefit here as well. And Modi is very keen to attract manufacturing to India. So you've got the first semiconductor fab being built there. You've got iPhone potentially going to be made in India as well. So we are looking to investment ideas in industrial gases, industrial gases are used in manufacturing. And I think one of the other things that the question that is very important for us is that we're very much looking for companies at the heart of change, solving real world challenges. So I think one of the challenges is can India urbanize, can it have that manufacturing without the environmental cost? We've obviously seen in China, industrialization in China has come at a huge environmental cost. So can India do this without having that cost to the environment? So industrial gases are less, lot less polluting than, say, oil and coal. So for us, this is leading us to invest in companies that are doing things in a more environmentally friendly way. And I also think that the consumption, the strength of the growing middle class by 2030, more than 50% of the population will be millennials and Gen Z. So big consuming parts of the demographics. They tend to consume more than any other demographics. Also that people coming out of poverty in India as well and into that middle class. So for me, India's got a really good structural growth story. I think that China is going to have a cyclical rebound, but structurally the demographics are not nearly as as attractive in China as you see in India, also in Indonesia, for instance, as well, which is another market that we like. Jane, tell me about a typical day in your life as a CIO. What does that look like? Where do you want me to start? <laughs> Getting up in the morning. I think one thing for me that's very important is that I've got goals and I've got focus. And so actually when I get up, I actually focus on my goals. And these are goals, not just in terms of the business, but also personal goals. And I have these written down. And so, you know, I can really focus on what I'm trying to achieve. And I think that's really important. And I also try and get into my day. I try to get some exercise in my day as well. That's, that's another important. And that helps give me clarity, clears my mind, you know, running, Pilates, tennis, something that I think it's really important that sometimes you can get so tunnel visioned in this industry that you can't see the wood for the trees. And I just find that really helps to clear my head. But I start, I check all my emails, I, I check companies, you know, what have they done overnight? What's the news flow? So really get into the the nitty-gritty of what's going on at a stock level. And that that's what I really enjoy. What's really important is to be able to discern what is important. Because otherwise you just get swamped with it. And I think that's a really that comes with experience. Which emails can I disregard? Which ones do I focus on? What is the important news that I need to focus on? And then it's very much about communicating with the team, discussing 
what we're seeing, the importance of having that collegiate culture. And then could be doing a podcast, <laughs> could be meeting with investors, building all the collateral. So a host of different things that I'm looking at every day. Who are your biggest inspirations in the investment business? I subscribe to people like John Maudlin. Uh, he collates from many, many different sources, and I find some of his commentary interesting. In terms of the investment greats, John Templeton, there's a, a lesser known Ralph Wagner who was very involved in small cap investing, and I find some of his thoughts interesting. So from a number of different perspectives, and I read widely, some of the people I've worked with in the past really helped form my early years in the business when I was at Midland Bank and again at John Gavette. So they really inspired me in those early years. Jane, this has been great. Thank you very much for your time. Not at all. It's been a pleasure, Anthony. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the Investment Manager podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps the show.